2017, the start of that year, I get contacted by a staff member at Google and that staff member was familiar with my work and he said, we just brought in the head of Planned Parenthood. And so since Google tries to present itself as being inclusive and tolerant, I wanted to suggest they bring in the other side of the debate and I wanted to suggest they bring in you. When we arrived in the room, there, were, there was a lighting issue and there was a flickering of a light. And I remember the staff member saying to me, if that light doesn't get fixed, they won't put the recording online because they want the top quality recording. And then the videographer didn't show up and we delayed the talk, I think a solid hour for it to make it on their YouTube platform and go viral. I mean, truly is, is a testament to the hand of God. There are very few people in the pro-life world who are able to speak to the issue of abortion like my next guest. Stephanie Gray has been in the movement for a long, long time. She's been one of the most successful apologetics workers in the pro-life movement that the movement's ever seen. In fact, she's been inspiration to so many young people to take up the cause of arguing for life that um, she's pretty much legend uh, in the pro-life movement. She's got a new book right now, which is coming at it from a different perspective, one that sings to my heart, uh, My Body for You is the new book by Stephanie Gray. Stay tuned to this episode of The John Henry Weston Show. Stephanie, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Great to be reconnected with you. We were just reminiscing. It's been too long. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Stephanie uh, is originally Canadian, uh, as am I, and uh, Canadian pro-lifers are super proud uh, to have you on this side, or at least born on this side of the border. <laughs> Well, thank you. You know, it's funny when I would do my speaking in the U.S., Americans would always say, when are you moving to the U.S.? And I would always say, find me an American husband. And so Lila Rose <laughs> took it upon herself to find me an American husband. <laughs> oh, wow. So, Stephanie, um, tell us a little bit about yourself, because you're known as a great apologist. You have debated uh, abortionists. You have spoken at Google. You've done all sorts of incredible things in the pro-life movement that people thought, oh, that's impossible. And yet you've done it with great flair. Who is Stephanie Gray and where in the world did you get into this from? Yeah. Well, um, I am born and raised in Canada, and uh, I, I would say I'm a daughter of the King, our Heavenly Father. Um, but in terms of how I got involved in the movement, really, it was my parents. I have to give great credit to them who um, raised me in the movement. So I knew about, you know, CLC and LifeSite News and all of these things growing up. Um, I have stacks of letters that I wrote to then Prime Minister Jean Chrétien and the premier, Mike Harcourt of British Columbia, where I was growing up when I was 12 and 13 and 14 years old, because my parents were so involved in the movement. That's what I was always doing, even well before those teenage years. But I then became really activated at that age. I mean, I remember at one point writing a letter to the prime minister and getting the classic response from the assistants to the prime minister. And I was so ticked that I didn't hear directly from the prime minister himself that I wrote a letter to the two assistants saying, I did not ask to hear from you. I asked to hear from the prime minister and he needs to listen to me and end abortion in Canada. So, um, 
you know, I was just deeply convicted as a young child. I loved babies and I knew what abortion was from a very early age. And so I therefore hated abortion and I knew there was a need to do something about it. Now, there's a beautiful thing in your book. You begin with motherhood. Um, that is something new for you or relatively new anyway, in terms of your pro-life activism. Tell us how that sort of changed your approach to pro-life and what it's meant for you. Yeah, great question. So yeah, I spent, so I, I was raised in the movement and then I went full-time in pro-life apologetics when I was 21. And so I spent essentially two decades working full-time, traveling, speaking, debating, and so forth. And uh, in my 40th year of life, uh, I guess 40 plus nine months, if we count my womb, womb time, um, I, I met and married my beloved, wonderful saintly Saint Joseph husband. His name is Joe and he's just like a Saint Joseph. Um, but uh, so we got married in 2020 and then we got pregnant almost right away and then very sadly lost our, our first child who we named Lele. Then we got pregnant again. And so that's our two and a half year old daughter, Violet. Then we had three more pregnancies that we lost through miscarriage, and then I'm I'm pregnant right now. And so these experiences of life and loss, of pregnancy, of of motherhood, both pregnant as well as post birth motherhood, have have really broadened my view on just the pro life message. Not that it was, you know, I've I've learned things I per se didn't know before, but it was theory, and now it's it's living it out, realizing just how beautiful the call to motherhood is, how each of us at the heights of our maturity when we get to adulthood are actually called to either motherhood or fatherhood. That's either just going to be lived out spiritually or biologically, um, sometimes both. You know, I consider what I did for 20 years in the movement to be a type of spiritual motherhood, but now I'm living it out, you know, in that very biological way. Um, so it, it's very beautiful. It's very fulfilling and very rewarding, but also very challenging. You know, I write that candidly in the book, you know, the, the challenges of raising, you know, a, a toddler who does not think and behave like an adult. <laughs> um, uh, the challenges of birth, you know, um, that were just so brutal. I write at the very start of the book that I declared to my husband while in the throes of labor that I should have been a nun. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, realizing that there's hardship that comes with the grand call that someone is is meant for. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but therefore then realizing as a movement, when we tell people reject abortion, carry a pregnancy to term, either place a child for adoption or, or parent your child, um, that that is calling people to challenges and to hardship. And it can be very real at times, which is why we need support, which the pro-life movement has always done an excellent job of, of doing. So, since you've gone there, let me ask you, because that makes it really hard. As you know, every time you get into the situation talking about abortion, almost for everybody, it always comes back to rape and incest. Already hard situations where women, in, in pure cases, when there, a lot of falsehood is given around that, but when there is a real crisis, when there is something that's happened that's unasked for and untoward and horrific, how are you asking them to take on more hardship? What's your response? Right. You know, to acknowledge that it is a profound hardship, uh, but to acknowledge that, unfortunately, I don't have a magic wand that can go back in history and undo things that never should have happened. So obviously, sexual assault, rape, you know, incest, all of these things never should have happened. If we can undo them from happening, we should, but we are not capable of that. We live in the present moment towards a future. We can't, we can't go back into the past. So at that point, then, if we're dealing with someone who's been victimized by sexual assault and has become pregnant, 
the child already exists and is in her body and must come out of her body. Our babies can't stay in our bodies forever. So at that point, we need to ask the question, what is the most ethical response to bring the child out dead as a result of an act we've intentionally inflicted through homicide or to bring out the child alive through, you know, a natural act of, of birth? So, you know, we, we need to acknowledge the hardship, but make the point that ending the child's life because of the sins of the father is not fair to the child. It just creates another victim. Just as the woman had an injustice inflicted upon her, to commit an abortion on the child is to an inflict an injustice on, on another innocent party. You know, I think of uh, two people you're familiar with. One is Leanna Rebolito, a, a pro-life speaker who was raped at the age of 12 and got pregnant. And she not only carried her child to term, but raised her daughter who became her best friend. And that's, uh, you know, a powerful testimony that's more powerful than even just my belief and statement that we ought not end the lives of these children. You know, you just need to look to the witness of someone like her and say, wow, if she could do that, then, then maybe others can do that as well. And then I think of the pro-life speaker, Ryan Bomberger, who was conceived as a result of rape. And uh, his uh, birth mom decided to place him for adoption, but he is so grateful to her for what he calls his gift of life and you know grateful to his adoptive parents for welcoming him into into their home and he has now paid the love of his birth mom and his adoptive parents forward by adopting children of his own so so you know when whatever we experience you get more of it so anger is going to breed anger love will bring love gener breed love generosity will breed generosity and so this selfless act of a rape victim who carries her baby to term essentially saying this is my body given for you that will breed more of that attitude of this is my body given for you with ryan you know using his life to speak for pre-born children to adopt needy children and so forth i, I remember uh, speaking with liana one time interviewing her and the line she told me, and gang raped and, and brutally, it was horrible, and she had scars from it. She said, I'd go through it again for my daughter. Just unbelievable. So I need to ask you what I know everybody wants to know. And there's two big questions that you probably get all the time. How was it debating at Google? What was that like, going to make a presentation at Google? That's incredible. What'd you do? Yes. So really, that is a God thing. Um, you know, I, it was very interesting, just the timing of everything, because I actually in 2015 was engaged to someone else and had a broken engagement, never made it to the altar. And as I was working through healing from heartbreak, my spiritual director encouraged me to go to a place near to your heart and mine, which was Madonna house. And he said, you need to go to Madonna House. You need to go there for 40 days because it's biblical. Uh, you need routine. You need community. You need prayer. And I said, but Father, they use outhouses. <laughs> and he's like, you need to go there. And so I went to Madonna House, and that was a time of real spiritual growth, of surrender, of trust. And I remember, so it was the fall of, of 2015 that I went there. And I remember saying to God, wow, I thought my life was just about to be changed. I thought I was about to get married and slow down, but that doesn't appear to be happening. So I entrust my pro-life work to you. You are now, even though he always was, but I really intentionally said it, you're my protector, producer, promoter, and provider. Uh, if you want me to keep doing this work, and I thought I was slowing down and I'm not, you're going to have to make a way. 
And so God started opening door after door after I finished my time at Madonna House. 2016 goes on, I continue my speaking. 2017, the start of that year, I get contacted by a staff member at Google. And that staff member was familiar with my work. And he said, look, uh, we run a series that's like TED Talks, but it's called Talks at Google. And it's for our staff, but we put it on our YouTube channel and it goes all around the world. And uh, we just brought in the head of Planned Parenthood. And so since Google tries to present itself as being inclusive and tolerant, I wanted to suggest they bring in the other side of the debate. And I wanted to suggest they bring in you. If I do that, would you do it? And I said, well, of course I would speak at Google, but what are the chances they're going to, to say yes? Um, but again, I really credit my time at Madonna House and the time of surrender. And uh, not long before that, my brother-in-law had given me a beautiful novena you're probably familiar with called the Surrender Novena, where you you know, reflect on words of Christ calling us to really trust him. And it, you say 10 times every day, I surrender myself to you, Jesus, take care of everything. And um, so I was saying that and I was like, I actually really think God's going to make this happen, but I know I can't. So I'm just going to keep praying this surrender prayer. And then I really felt like God blinded the people that needed to be blinded and gave sight to the people that needed to have sight because the way the opportunity to get to their headquarters unfolded and to speak at their headquarters and the event not be shut down and then for it to make it on their YouTube platform and go viral, I mean, truly is, is a testament to the hand of God and that when we are open to his will, but at the same time, uh, letting things unfold as he wills in his timing. It's, it's really remarkable. And even down to the day itself, uh, when we arrived in the room, there were, there was a lighting issue and there was a flickering of a light. And I remember the staff member saying to me, if that light doesn't get fixed, they won't put the recording online because they want the top quality recording. So then they were trying to scramble to get the light fixed. And then the videographer didn't show up and we delayed the talk, I think a solid hour knowing mm -hmm. that the ultimate power of it would be if it got recorded and then got put on their channel. Um, and so, so it just all happened. And so it was, it was the spring of, it was Easter 2017. The event happened, I believe it was June, 2017. It was ultimately aired and then, and, and went viral after that. Beautiful. Now I have to ask you something because in terms of pro-life speaker, the ability to convey the pro-life argument, you are, and I'm not meaning to swell your head, but you are one of the most articulate, successful in, in that way of evangelizing the pro-life uh, talking points, if you will, uh, one of the most successful people on earth. Yet you've pivoted, you've, you've gone in a different direction, and, and it, at least in terms of being more open about faith and things of that nature, You've been able to listen, as you were mentioning, to the voice of the Lord. It's a very hard thing to do. So a two-part question. Tell us about how to hear the voice of the Lord, um, how it works for you, because I know it's different for other people, but um, how that works, because it's very difficult for a lot of people, but also how that transformation or 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 approach, different approach in your life worked and what you see coming of it? 
Yeah, great questions. So, I mean, again, I, I really credit my parents not only for raising me in the movement, but raising me in the faith and letting me know about Jesus and the Catholic Church. And um, that really was formative for me. I went to a very good Catholic high school. I had very good friends. And so um, the foundation was there. And when I went to university, it was natural to get involved in the pro-life club and to find the local Catholic church to go to mass. And so those two things just kept coming together. And so um, I have found the sacraments and uh, adoration to be two areas where I've really been able to hear the voice of the Lord and receive him, as well as being obedient to trusted authorities, you know, seeking up spiritual direction very early on growing up actually didn't my parents never had spiritual directors, we went to confession, but I didn't know about spiritual direction. And then I noticed in university, some Catholic friends started doing that. So then I started doing that. It was like, I followed the crowd in a good way. And um, realize that when you find a holy wise person to entrust the, the deepest parts of your heart to, that, you know, obviously you need to continually use wisdom and discernment, but you generally should be able to trust in, in their authority and guidance. And so um, I had a couple spiritual directors early on and then a wonderful Byzantine Ukrainian Catholic priest monk um, who was connected to Madonna House ultimately, but um, who who just, you know, formed me and helped me for years. And so continual seeking out of his wisdom uh, helped, but but certainly just times of prayer, times of adoration, and times in the sacraments. And then I was very blessed through the movement, which again, you know so well. I mean, there's just so many beautiful people in the movement that are on fire for the Lord. And so a lot of events that I would go to where there was uh, a faith-based audience, because obviously at Google there wasn't, and at college campuses there isn't, but there were many venues that I went to. You know, I spoke at net trainings, and I spoke uh, at CCO and different events where there was a, a deeply spiritual group of people that um, would give me opportunities at their events where I could have prayer time in, in the way they worshipped, in the way they did praise and worship or mass or different things. And so all of that really helped me and I knew had to be, you know, essential to, to any work that I did. Um, years ago, I don't remember who recommended it, but someone told me to read the book, The Soul of the Apostolate. And there's a beautiful illustration in this book where St. Bernard, um, talks about a channel versus a reservoir. And he said, a channel, the water just flows through. But with a reservoir, water fills up and then the excess overflows. And he said, uh, souls that do ministry-based work without prayer are like channels. They're running, 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 busy, 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 doing, doing, doing. But by not taking time to pray, they run out of steam and they can be a threat to whatever ministry they're in as well as to their spiritual well-being. He goes, instead, we are to be like reservoirs. So we are to take time and be still and know that God is God, allow ourselves to be filled up with the Holy Spirit, and then let that overflow into any apostolic ministry-based activity that we do. And so, again, lots of counsel I've been given over the years, but being given that book and that counsel also was very formative and, and influential in, in helping me see, okay, this is this is how we discern things. So then... I know to answer your question about this more like recent evolution, you know, for years I was, I was raised kind of in the movement to speak the language of my audience. And there's a place for that. So at Google, I spoke a non-sectarian language at an evangelical church. I'll use a lot of scripture passages at a Catholic church. I'll do that as well as maybe some catechism passages or whatever. Um, but I, I started to sense that the most powerful words we can use are the words of Christ. 
whether our audience knows that or not, um, he's God himself and he is the word and he gives us the word and we should be using his words. And I, at the end of my new book, I, I share a story how I spoke in Mexico at an event similar to TED Talks, but it was called CDI. And I prayed beforehand, God, what do you want me to share with this audience? And I really sensed that he wanted me to, to work with this message of the greatest love being this is my body given for you, as opposed to the opposite of that, which abortion is, which is this is your body taken from me. And I used that message and it went over really well. And then in the subsequent years, I got married, I had children. And I, I also share in the book, but at the beginning of the book, how I was at mass one day with my daughter when she was six months old and she started fussing and my husband handed her to me and I began to breastfeed her. And I sat down for her to latch. And as I was looking down at her little face feeding on me, we were at the exact moment of the mass of the consecration where the priest says, this is my body, uh, take and eat. This is my body <laughs> given for you. And I'm listening to these words I've heard my whole life as my daughter, my flesh and blood is literally consuming me. <laughs> And it's just the Eucharist took on a whole new meaning. Christ's sacrifice mm. took on a whole new meaning. Motherhood took on a whole new meaning. And the pro-life message took on a whole new meaning. This realization that at the heart of the pro-life message is, is a call for everyone to be like Christ. And a mother has a very unique way of doing that by laying down her body physically, emotionally, spiritually, and every level and saying to our offspring, take and eat. This is my body given for you. And it starts in pregnancy, but it continues well beyond after that too. Wow. Wow. That is so powerful. I think a lot of people will get that. Um, and a lot of people who, who will have trouble breastfeeding need to pay attention to that last part because <laughs> the last part is that happens from the get-go. The, the baby is literally eating from your body or eating your body. Yeah. Um, during the whole nine months. Um, it's incredible insight. I, I love that about the way you speak. You very, you put in easy terms concepts that could be described very loftily and, and outside of the reach of the normal man. Um, you can do that too, but you choose to distill so much of your learning, hard fought learning, I might add, um, into very understandable ways to communicate them to the people who need it, who aren't necessarily going to be so educated. You did that beautifully um, with uh, Viktor Frankl's work. Mm. Um, I love your distillation of his sort of end for depression. If you wouldn't mind would you mind giving us that in a in a neat nutshell? Because you do it so beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, I absolutely love the insights of Holocaust survivor and psychiatrist, Dr. Viktor Frankl, who lived suffering and observed suffering. So both as a, a victim of the Holocaust, as well as um, a psychiatrist who, you know, saw the intimate details of so many people's lives who were really languishing and in anguish at various times, both before and after the war. Um and so one of the things he talks about and, and wrote about was this little mathematical equation called D equals S minus M. And by that, he meant despair. The D is suffering S minus M without meaning. Despair is suffering without meaning. And so what he came to realize is that we humans 
need to find meaning in whatever situation we're in, in order to thrive and flourish. And the reality is because we live in a broken world, we cannot eliminate suffering from our lives. But he wanted to make the point that we could eliminate or at the very least decrease despair from our lives to the extent that we find meaning. And so that's where this D equals S minus M came from, where he said, look, if suffering, that S is a constant thing we all need to factor into our lives, then how do we find meaning in direct relationship to the suffering we're experiencing? And to the extent we find meaning, our experience of despair will go down. But if we find no meaning in our suffering, then our experience of despair will go up. And so rather than eliminate suffering, he's like, we need to introduce meaning. And so he cites beautiful examples, you know, a, a girl who became a, a, a quadriplegic where she was paralyzed from the neck down, couldn't move her arms or legs. And he said she would spend her days watching the news and reading the news. And when she would come across a story of someone who was suffering, you know, maybe it was a story about a, a house fire and someone lost their home or someone was in a car accident, whatever the case may be, she would call for an assistant to come and put a stick in her mouth. And she used that little stick to move her head to pound out letters on a keyboard in order to write notes of encouragement to people she just read about in the news. And so here's Dr. Frankel saying, look, this young woman is paralyzed. She has profound suffering in her life, but she's not despairing. She doesn't want to end her life. Why? Because she found meaning and the meaning is directly connected to her experience of suffering. And so his whole point is to the extent each of us can do that, uh, then we will find lives of uh, flourishing and fulfillment. Absolutely beautiful. Going from uh, Dr. Frankel to um, Dr. Peter Singer. Yeah. Um, that, that's incredible. Who how, technically how is, is not a doctor, I've discovered. Would you believe it? <laughs> yeah. He does not have his PhD. <laughs> wow. That's unbelievable. But yeah, tell us about I that. Know. Tell us about the debate and how that got set up and what you took away from it. Yeah, so that was supposed to be in person. That was uh, around the time of COVID. It was 2020. And the Harvard pro-life students reached out to me and said, we want to do a debate on campus. Would you be the pro-life representative? I said, great. I said, let's, hey, wait, wait, let's wait. see. Just let me stop you there. <laughs> <laughs> so many people would be like, you want to debate at Harvard, Dr. Peter Singer. I, and most people would be like, oh, yeah. I mean, oh, boy. Um, yeah, you <laughs> might find somebody. But you're like, yeah, great, good. Let's go. Let's go. Please continue. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will say, I don't know if they had Singer at the time, and I can't remember if I recommended him or or they found him. Uh, but as, as you know, from the history of my pro-life career, it's often been difficult to get abortion supporters willing to share oh, a stage because they realize that they have the advantage of widespread acceptance of abortion on demand. And so when they share a stage with us, they jeopardize that. We could change people's minds. So often debate opponents before they became opponents would decline debates. And there was a select number of people that maybe had enough hubris that would say, oh, I'll debate her anyways. So um, I wasn't sure if the club would get a debate off the ground, but they were able to secure Peter Singer to be willing to debate. And I was like, this is amazing. I have spent 20 years studying this man, you know, talking to my audiences about this man, and now I'm actually going to debate him. So of course, COVID happened and he was in Australia and uh, I was in the US. So it ended up being uh, an online debate, but it was obviously through everything online these days, larger, uh, more largely attended than in person. And there's been tons and tons of views of, of the debate. And, and I would say it was, it was a, 
it was actually a, ch a challenging experience I found because I often will describe to people that he comes across as a really nice person. And um, he has that soothing Australian accent. I always think someone with an accent just has an advantage in a debate. <laughs> I wish I had my dad's Scottish accent because it just would, would give me an, a leg up. But um, so, so here's Singer with this nice soothing accent you know he kind of has a grandfatherly charm to him um and he does some very good things you know he's known for um what's described as uh something altruism now i'm forgetting the, the exact phrase but he encourages people to no donate huge sums of their income he does that more than 10 percent of his income he donates to causes you know people who have heard his philosophy on on being generous to others have been inspired to donate their kidneys to strangers so there is some good that this man has done but there's also profound evil that he has done through his teachings on abortion on on euthanasia and so forth um, and so I knew the challenge would be to expose his views on how we treat preborn life uh, as being the monstrous views they are. Um, the challenge would be to really expose that in light of these other views that he holds that that people celebrate rightly, you know. So, um, but it it was it was a, a great experience because I think it's a great way of reaching a lot of people who ordinarily would not listen to the pro-life message are now going to tune into that debate and have online um, and therefore going to hear a pro-life message in contrast to his worldview. Beautiful. Beautiful. If you haven't seen that debate, go check it out. Um, so in your book, you talk about fathers. You, you mentioned with regard to your husband, Joe, um, that he's a real St. Joseph. Um, tell us about how married life and especially the example of St. Joseph have affected you and and your thoughts around fatherhood and abortion yeah yeah i love that question so i actually have a whole chapter in my book called when our bodies are protected and i cite um one of my all-time favorite men and spiritual fathers which is bishop olmstead who actually presided over my wedding. I met him years ago at, at a pro-life event and have just always found him to be so holy and so Christ-like. And what I cite in that chapter is he wrote a beautiful challenge and reflection for men called Into the Breach, really challenging them to rise to their call to fatherhood. Again, like the call to motherhood, whether it's spiritual or biological, and to, to remember what does it mean to be a father? It's to be a protector. It's to be a provider. It's to, you know, help. It's to teach. It's to form and so forth. It's to do hard things when they're the right things. And um, so I, you know, I, I write that over my years in the movement, I have met a lot of people who are incredibly bitter towards men. A lot of abortion supporters that I have met um, have showed profound hostility to men in general, but I would say pro-life men in particular. And I've never understood that because my experience of men has been very positive, you know, from my own father to leaders in the movement to now my husband. And I started to realize maybe that's because I've experienced the men in my life living out into the breach, living out authentic masculinity and fatherhood. And these other people have experienced men abandoning them or betraying them or using and abusing them. And, and that has, you know, changed their perception uh, of men as a result of their own pain and their own experiences. So um, I think 
certainly then my my positive experience and some of these people's negative experiences have have made me realize how important it is that men empower men to go into the breach and and to live that authentic masculinity to be the protectors and providers that that are so needed and i cite a story in my book of a friend of mine who uh, tried to be that for his pregnant girlfriend and she wanted the abortion and sadly in canada where men can't in most parts of the world where abortion is legal can't ultimately decide whether an abortion happens you know he tried valiantly to convince his girlfriend to carry to term even if she didn't want to be in relationship with him he would raise the child and and she uh you know declined and and ultimately had the abortion and killed his child and that just killed him in a sense you know is figuratively speaking and he had worked hard to be the man he ought to have been by trying to protect his child but then there are other men that will get behind the steering wheel and drive their girlfriends or wives to or daughters to abortion clinics and so um yeah we need we need the the men who are are giving virtuous examples to really rise up and inspire other men to continue to do the same. I mean, just even thinking, as I mentioned earlier, just the, the challenges and, and the hard times of, of parenting and of being a mom, you know, you're exhausted. I mean, I went through a, a season of profound sleep deprivation when, when my daughter was waking every hour. And I honestly felt like I was losing my mind at some points. And uh, besides God, you know, giving me grace in, in that season, uh, my husband was my rock. I mean, when I was yelling and losing my mind, he was peaceful and calm and and so loving and so tender and so gentle and taking on extra work and extra loads so that my load could be lightened, you know? And so that's what what we need more of. Beautiful. Um, since you're in America now, and uh, we're obviously coming up to an election, a lot of people post Roe, um, there's a different feel. The, the, the want, particularly of the Republicans, or at least some of them, to still be pro-life, still fight for life, seems to be on the wane. What do we do as the pro-life movement, particularly in America, in a post-Roe America? Yeah, I mean, we need to remember that we won a battle when Roe was overturned by the Supreme Court in the Dobbs decision, but we didn't win the war and that the war is still raging and that uh, a moment of celebration is good to give us motivation to keep going, not to pack it up and be like, okay, well, you know, now it's, it's a state by state level because, well, first of all, if it's primarily being battled at a state level, then we need to be battling at a state level and making sure that, that in states like Ohio, as we recently saw where you unexpectedly, I would say, had this, this amendment to the state constitution to broaden access to abortion in a state where generally you would have expected a, a more conservative response. Uh, there's a need to to make change there. But as as I've said, um, abortion, because it is an act of homicide that directly and intentionally ends the life of the youngest of our kind, at the end of the day, we don't determine that state by state. It would be like saying, well, rape is legal in this state, but it's illegal in that state. It doesn't make sense. Rape, rape is so heinous and it's so wrong and it's so evil that it shouldn't be legal at a national level. And so we should work at a state level where there are state battles happening, but we really need to remind people that the right to life is an inalienable right, which means it's not something granted because if it's granted, it can be taken away. It's something inherent to our very existence. And so since science has established preborn children 
are members of the human family and exist and begin their lives at fertilization, their inalienable right to life begins then, and therefore they should be protected at a national level. So I think we need to force the debate open. We need to go to the gatekeepers, that's our, our church leaders, our school leaders, uh, into public places, and we need to be making debate happen where people see we're not going away just because Roe v. Wade was overturned. Uh, we're celebrating that, but then we're saying there's more work to be done. Indeed. I'm going to give you a last question. This might be a challenging one. What's your vision of the end to abortion in America, in the world? How does that play out? How do we get there? Good question. I think it is a holistic vision. It's it's not one solution is going to actually solve the problem. We have to realize the movement, I've, I've said this actually throughout my career, has different arms that, like we know from St. Paul in the scriptures, a body has different parts, but all are needed to the greater functioning of the whole. So we need our political activism. We absolutely need good politicians who are dedicating their lives to look at a political career, not as establishing a good retirement plan, but as making a positive difference in the world and making their legacy a legacy of affirming life. Uh, so we need people called to the political field. We need to educate people so that when political debates especially are happening, which are often what make the news, that good education and formation is happening, hence my, my work over the years in, in apologetics. Uh, but then again, my own experience of motherhood is very practically people need help. Like motherhood is not easy. And so, you know, I've, I've thought more, I've often, I mean, my mom volunteered at a pregnancy center. So I saw a lot of single moms growing up, but now that I am a mom, I've just thought like, how do the single moms do it? Because I have faced challenging times with support, right? So, so realizing, and I, again, I feature them in my book, having support networks like the Sisters of Life, who literally open up one of their convents to pregnant women and then moms postpartum as well, who, who live with them with their, their born children, to empower them in their motherhood. Um, Mary's Shelter, I mean, there's places across Canada, really across the world that do the same type of thing. We need to be offering that very practical hands-on support. So we need to work in, I would say those three arms of the movement, but at the same time realizing, which again, you feature so well at LifeSite, uh, is, is there's a bigger cultural battle. There's a spiritual battle going on. And so even beyond abortion, there are so many threats and attacks on the dignity of the human person. And so, um, you know, there's a need to to get to our roots, to get to the faith and and really be praying more for inspiration as to how to spiritually convert our culture as well. Absolutely beautiful. Stephanie Gray, so good to be with you. Tell us, where can we get your book? Yeah, so people can go to stpaulcenter.com slash you. And if your listeners type in the coupon code for you 15, then they'll get a, a discount there. So that's stpaulcenter.com slash you. And if people want to learn more about my blogging and day-to-day -day work, that's at loveunleasheslife.com. Stephanie Gray, so good to see you again. God bless you. Thank you. And God bless all of you. And we'll see you next time.